you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter number 10. Revelation chapter number 10. I tried to point out along the way in our study in Revelation that the end is not the exclusive focus of Revelation. However, it is a focus of Revelation and we'll give time and attention to that focus in the time we have together. I think one of the more challenging things for readers of Revelation is just understanding how the book moves, the flow of, of the conversation created in Revelation. You have these three series of sevens. Now, how does that all work together? Because it, the trick is it feels as though at the end of each of those series, it's over. And then it all sort of starts again. And the reason it feels that way is because it is over at the end of each of those series, and it all starts over again. You have seven scrolls and seven trumpets and seven bowls that describe the judgments of God that are coming to pass. In the seven scrolls, you, you're brought right to the very end, and then you start over. Those seven trumpets are enveloped, they're encapsulated in that seventh scroll, and they begin to sound and were brought once more to the very end. And what we'll find after this section of Revelation is that within that seventh trumpet are the seven bowls, and then we're brought right back up until the very end once again. Chapters 10 and 11 are described as an interlude. They represent a break in the action created by the sounding of those first six trumpets. As with much of Revelation, there are some things here in these chapters which are a tad bit unclear. I think they're made much more clear as we read closer these verses together. But what is absolutely certain here is that the end of the world as we know it is now here. And it's certain. By now here, I don't mean like right now. I mean as in in the passage. Although it's entirely possible that it could be here as in like right now. What we learn of these events, the events which precede the end is sobering. Most of what precedes the end is described in chapter 11. And some might regard that as uh, a dreadful uh, season. Jesus describes it as a period of great tribulation. The very idea of the end strikes fear in the hearts of, of most, and perhaps reasonably so. Much of our fixation and fascination with the end is driven by what we don't know and the fear that arises out of the unknown. However, in the gospel, what we're promised as believers in Christ is a new beginning on the other side of the end. Revelation takes great pains in order to exhort us to look beyond the end to the new beginning that awaits us in Christ. I want us to read together chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. This will be the focus of our study this morning and observe just four basic principles from the passage. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse number 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like fiery pillars, and he had a little scroll open in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. 
And he cried out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders spoke with their voices. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write them. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore an oath by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be an interval of time, but in the days of the sound of the seventh angel, when he will blow his trumpet, then God's hidden plan will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. You may have recognized in the reading of verses 1 and 2 that some of the imagery used to describe that mighty angel sounds familiar. In fact, in all of chapter 10, there's a lot of familiar symbolism and imagery. Specifically in verses 1 and 2, the way this mighty angel is described is, is using the same terminology of Revelation 1 and the description of Jesus in that initial or inaugural vision in the Revelation. Even if you're not familiar with Revelation, if you've not been following along and you were just reading those first few verses, you're probably thinking, well, who is this mighty angel? Is this Jesus described as an angel, someone like Jesus? It's, it's probably intended by John to represent someone who is sent as an ambassador of Jesus. Someone closely identified with Jesus because of the similarity and the symbolism and the imagery used to describe him. He comes down from heaven. He comes with great power. He is surrounded by a cloud. There's a rainbow over his head. His face shines like the sun. All features that we find in Revelation 1 in that description of one like the Son of Man. Here he has legs of fiery pillars. In Revelation 1, the Son of Man has legs as of fired bronze, fired in the furnace. There's so much similarity. The point is, an ambassador of heaven, this mighty angel, as he's been described, comes down. Verse 2 tells us that he had a little scroll opened in his hand, and he put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. You might have noted as we read through the chapter that this idea of having put one foot on the sea and one foot on the land is the only part of this description repeated throughout the chapter. It appears a couple more times in the chapter describing that mighty angel, the one who put one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. We haven't covered, obviously, the second half of Revelation yet, and in some ways, Revelation 10 and 11 serves as a summary and introduction for the second half of the book. But one of the things that you're going to get familiar with over the course of our study of those chapters is that a dragon comes from the sea and his beast comes from the earth. The appearance is that this dragon bears great authority. And even reading the description of the beast might strike fear in one's heart 
at the power, the authority that this beast from the earth bears. Here in verses 1 and 2, we have a preface to that description of Satan and his work. A preface to this description of Domitian, the beast from the earth, the beast from the sea, who works in such horrible ways against the people of Asia Minor. They bear the appearance of power. Even reading Revelation, we might think that this dragon from the sea is powerful. We might think that this beast from the earth is powerful. But the placement of this mighty angel, this ambassador of heaven's feet on the sea and the dry ground is representative of authority on land and on sea. The symbolic power of what's being described in our passage is to say... That these petty tyrants, this dragon from the abyss, this beast from the land, this beast from the sea, Domitian as you know him, they may bear the appearance of power, but Jesus is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Before there's ever any opportunity whatsoever to confuse what you see in the dragon and the beast with real power, let it be noted big and bold in this introduction to that section that Jesus is the true king. In our personal experiences, it can feel as though we have been swept up in the tide of an unjust system, living in a world where the, the culture is forever bombarding us with attack upon attack upon attack upon attack. It can feel as though there is no recourse for us, no way out, nothing that we can do to rectify the injustice wrought against us. John's inviting us here in such beautiful symbolism to remember that though these petty tyrants that war against us may bear the appearance of power, that Jesus is the true king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the king of every king. Jesus is the final authority, both on land and on sea. Verse 3 goes on to tell us that this mighty angel cried out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders spoke with their voices. Listen to this. This is my favorite part of the chapter. The seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write... Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. This is like what my kids do. Yeah, I got to tell you something. You're not going to believe this. Nah, I can't tell you. <laughs> no, I got to tell you. You won't believe what happened. Nah, I can't tell you. Some of y'all do this to me. Don't do this to your pastor. You come to me and you say, Brother Wade, I really need to talk to you about something. Can you meet in three weeks? <laughs> don't ever, don't do that to your path. Because for the next three weeks, all I'm going to think about is what's going on in your life. What has happened to you? What tragedy has struck or God forbid, what have I done? So I always give this 10 second synopsis of what the issue is and we'll schedule accordingly. It's kind of weird, right? I heard seven thunders and then God said, don't write that down. John, John's allowing us to follow along in this visionary experience, this revelation of all that God has done and is doing and will do in days to come. And he's writing under the inspiration so that we can see with eyes of faith the purpose and the plan of God unfolding past and present and future. God says, leave this section out. It's intentional. It's by design in our passage. If it weren't, you just don't write it. 
Like if you're taking notes in your history class and the teacher says, you don't have to put this in your notes. You know, make a note that says, you don't have to put this in your notes. It's a feature in the passage, a feature that indicates to us that not even in the book of Revelation do we have all of the insight of our God with regards to the unfolding of his plan and his purpose. In spite of all that God has given us, in spite of the indwelling of the Spirit, the Spirit of truth that guides us in the discernment of all knowledge, there's still things that we don't know. And we need to be in a home and comfortable with that. It's kind of two ends of the spectrum with regards to this principle. I find frustration with, with both. On the one hand, there are those who feel as though they need to know everything. And everything has to be packaged neatly, systematized, so that it's easily digestible and it can be communicated to others. And then we defend our established systems and ideas built up upon God's word by man with life and limb. We insist this must be embraced wholeheartedly. The idea is with all of the information that we have available to us, we have Google in our pocket now, access to all of the information that the age of technology has afforded us. Surely we must be able to master the mind and the will of God. There just remains to be mystery for us. The, the World Wide Web and all of the information that it contains is a flicker on the radar compared to the infinite wisdom, insight, and knowledge of our God. The other end of the spectrum is just to give ourselves over to willful ignorance. Well, it's challenging, it's difficult, so we'll just sort of not worry about certain things. The problem is you leave yourself victim to falling prey to every wind and doctrine. The sweet spot is to embrace a responsibility to understand as best we can the word of God and to hide his word in our heart that we might not sin against him. And to be, to be willing to live with the unresolved tensions and the mysteries that persist in the scripture. Can I give you some examples? I don't know how in the world three persons can exist in one God. But I know that they do because the Bible tells me so. I don't know how in the world Jesus can be 100% divine. This is what they teach you. In, this is the terminology in your theology class in seminary. 100% divine and 100% man. There's only 100%. I don't care what your coach tells you. You only have 100% to give. But I know he was because the Bible tells me so. We can wade into deeper waters here. I don't know how in the world it is that God could fix the number of those who would call upon his name, have their names written in the Lamb's book of life in the very foundation of the world, and yet you and I would be personally, individually responsible that we would repent of our sin and confess the name of Jesus for our salvation. But I believe it because the Bible tells me so. And I don't know the minutiae of how it is that God will work in the very last days of this world's history. But I know that he will.
because the Bible tells me so. There, there is an area of drifting into unhealthy fixation and fascination with the last things that you ought to guard against. At the point in time at which these truths cease to have meaningful gospel impact in your life, you have drifted away from the direct application of the word of God into your life and into the kind of mindless conjecture that won't make a difference 10 minutes from now, let alone a thousand years from now. An element of mystery remains. Now go back to verse five. Then the angel that I'd seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore an oath by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be an interval of time, but in the days of the sound of the seventh angel, when he will blow his trumpet, then God's hidden plan will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. And there will no longer be an interval of time is what the Bible says here. This is the end of the world as we know it. This world, in its current form, will cease to exist at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. We've got a little work to do to get there, get through chapter 11, most of chapter 11, and we're introduced to the seventh trumpet in the latter part. But what John is making abundantly clear is that a definite end will come. This whole concept has been trivialized a little bit in our culture because there is so much fascination with the end. I would just say to you that the end of the world as we know it is coming, not because it's on a Mayan calendar or because of some obscure reference in antiquity by some mindless philosopher, but because the word of God has said it. There's a certainty about what John says in our passage. There will no longer be an interval of time, but in the days of the sound of the seventh angel, when he will blow his trumpet, God's hidden plan will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophet, the end will have come with absolute certainty and with absolute finality. We were having a conversation recently, the staff was, and one of our team members noted that people don't like declarative statements anymore. That was the remark, and it was astute. It's insightful. It's a good observation. People don't like declarative statements. In other words, people don't, don't like immovable, absolute truth statements. It seems off-putting in, in our day and time. I find this incredibly frustrating. Truth has become this incredibly slippery concept. It's very difficult to nail down. Now, this may seem distant, obscure, and removed from real-life experience and immediate application, but it's not. Recently, every gospel conversation I find myself in, I get to hear about someone, what someone thinks or someone feels with no basis outside of themselves whatsoever. What I want to say to you this morning, because this passage provides us with platform to speak of absolute reality. When the end comes, it will come without concern for how you feel about the coming of the end. 
without concern of the mind of the populace with regard to the end unfolding. There is certainty and there is finality about the coming of this abrupt halt to all things as we know it. This kind of thinking has made its way into the church. I was out of town at a wedding yesterday. I had a minister ask me a question that offended me, and I'm not sure I covered my offense all that well. He said, what kind of church are y'all? Like it's a buffet. Like we just look across the New Testament and we pick some stuff to do. We want to be this kind of church, so we brand ourselves this way and we choose these points of emphasis and we do this kind of stuff. I don't get to decide what kind of church we are. You don't get to decide what kind of church we are. I don't get to decide the stuff we do. You don't get to decide the stuff we do. Our church is not run by a vote. Our church is governed by the Bible. Jesus is the head of the church. No church gets to decide what they do, what kind of church we will be. That kind of thought process, it's made its way into the church and it makes its way into the Christian experience where we think that somehow our circumstances are dictating back to God what is right or wrong in a given set of circumstances. In our scenario, things are somehow going to be different. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ has not changed. The mission of the church has not changed and it, and it won't regardless of how you feel about that or how I feel about that or what your truth is by your deluded perception. It matters not. The truth of the gospel is the truth of the gospel. The end will come and judgment will be passed. If you ever had any experience in our justice system, which I have unfortunately experienced, may make you uncomfortable to know of your pastor, but it's best to be honest, right? Something certain about verdict rendered and a sentence passed. Something inflexible, something rigid, something unmovable about a statement made from the court's bar. And even that falls short of the rigidity of the judgment of God, how unchanging the judgment of God is. In the court of heaven, there is no appellate system. The supreme judge of the supreme court of the cosmos will pass verdict against you. His verdict will stand forever. It really concerns me in conversation, hearing so much about feelings and perceptions so often not shaped by the reality of the present circumstance. There are no more irrelevant words in our consideration of the gospel of Jesus Christ than the two words, I think. It doesn't matter what your pastor thinks about the gospel. It doesn't matter what you think about the gospel. What matters is the absolute truth of the gospel. You and I are left but to reckon with that reality, and we must, as inflexible, as fixed as the very end of all things is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says he is the way and the truth and the life and no man can come to the Father except by him. The end is coming. All of human history sliding toward that end. This is not the focus of Revelation 10, but I think it's worth noting 
given the sour taste of this little principle we're chewing on here. But the promise of the gospel is that a new beginning awaits us beyond the end. That new beginning is entirely contingent upon our embrace of the message of the gospel that says that Jesus died in our place and rose again on the third day. As believers, we needn't look toward the end with fear and trepidation, but with joy and gladness of heart at what awaits us on that day. Mystery remains, no doubt. We can be absolutely certain that the world as we know it now is being drawn to its end. Look at verse 8. The Bible says, Now the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. See how sea and land is repeated again and again throughout our chapter. That's the focus. Verse 9. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take and eat it. It'll be bitter in your stomach, but it'll be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You may have recognized this whole concept of taking a scroll and eating it from Ezekiel, specifically Ezekiel chapter 3. A few years ago, I did a Bible reading plan for the year. You, know, you choose one at the beginning of the year. And my, my Bible reading plan, the title was Eat the Book, which was based on Ezekiel 3, where God tells Ezekiel to eat the scroll, eat the book, as it was framed within my Bible reading plan. There's some fascinating things happening here in our passage. Just for the time, for a moment, we'll consider chapters 10 and 11 together. Once we get into chapter 11, there's, there's a ton of Old Testament imagery that's used in that passage. You have the language of Moses and Elijah. You have the prophecy of Daniel. All of these Old Testament themes are being brought together here in chapters 10 and 11. What we have is a dramatization of the last days. And in this drama, John features himself as Ezekiel the prophet. In the same way that Ezekiel is invited to eat the book, the mighty angel says to John, take and eat the scroll. It will be sweet in your mouth, but bitter in your stomach. Later again, Daniel is cited. Moses and Elijah come to the party. But there is in the foreground of these two chapters another, another actor in this dramatization of the last days that if we're not careful, we'll overlook. He is unnamed, but he plays the feature part in the story. It's interesting when you start to think about Ezekiel, when he prophesied is almost as important as what he does in our passage. The scroll represents the coming of judgment. It's sweet in the mouth and bitter on the stomach because it is sweet to receive the word of God. But in this particular instance, the word of God bears forth judgment against the subjects of God and therefore it is heavy or bitter on the stomach. Ezekiel prophesies during that period of time in Israel's history known as the Babylonian captivity, when Israel is carried away captive, which is the ultimate punishment for their disobedience. When Israel is established as a nation, God establishes covenant with them through the prophet Moses. And he warns them, if you hope to stay in this land, you must obey my commandments. 
best known example of this is in the Ten Commands. Honor your mother and father that your days may be long in the land. That doesn't mean so your mom and daddy won't kill you. It, it, it means that if you fail to honor your mother and father, the breakdown of the family begins to unfold. The nucleus of society begins to deteriorate, and your days in this land won't be long once the family has begun to fold. There is a timeless principle there that stands even outside of the covenant of Moses. But over the course of time, Israel disobeyed, and Israel disobeyed, and Israel disobeyed, disobeyed. The Babylonian exile is that period of time in Israel's history when God said, I finally had enough. And he sends the army of the Babylonians under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar to carry them away into exile, to take them out of the promised land. That's when Ezekiel prophesies. And that's the very message of judgment contained on the scroll that was sweet on his mouth, and bitter on his stomach. Now, John is featuring himself as actor in this dramatization as the new Ezekiel, who's prophesying on the cusp of the last days. And what he's observed is that the nations, the nations, the nations have disobeyed and disobeyed and disobeyed. Listen to the last sentence of Revelation chapter 10. You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And now the judgment of God is going to come against you. This is the scene. John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos is playing the role of Ezekiel the prophet that brings the message of God's judgment. And the nations, people of every tribe and tongue and people, are playing the role of the nation of Israel. In other words, in the same way that Israel experienced that cycle of blessing. And presumptuousness and judgment and repentance and deliverance again and again and again and again. So too now the nations, blessed through the message of the gospel that has thrown open the lineage of Abraham to people of every tribe, tongue, and people who by faith would entrust themselves to God, have now fallen into the same cycle of disobedience, blessedness, presumptuousness, judgment, repentance, and deliverance. In other words, the nations have become Israel. But in the build-up to the last days, they will fulfill their role as Israel by following after that same pattern of stubborn disobedience, demanding of God the very kind of judgment that befell the Israelites in the times of Ezekiel the prophet. Isn't that cool? I can take you back a few chapters in Revelation. I can show you how there's this wedding of the nations with Israel, this overlap between Old Testament experience and the nations under the new covenant. But I got news for you. Not only are the nations Israel, but you are Israel. We always want to do this thing in Bible reading. We want to be David who cuts off the head of our giant or something silly like that. That has nothing to do with the passage. Here's an invitation to impose yourself upon the text of Scripture. Haven't you experienced that when God blesses you richly, you grow presumptuous over time and you take for granted his favor on your life? And haven't you experienced that when God shows up in seasons of pain and judgment, you call out to him for help 
in repentance. The cycle that we see Israel experience again and again and again and again is the cycle of our life. Revelation 10 speaks of that interval in human history when, as was the case with Israel, God has finally had enough and the end will come. John plays the role of Ezekiel and the nations play the role of Israel in this dramatized telling of the last days. That's it. It's all of Revelation 10. Sometimes, there are a few times, this happens to me once or twice a year. When I, I think on a Sunday morning, I'm going to try to be as dull and um, as unemotive as I can be today and just see what God does. Sometimes I get, sometimes I get, like I know how to do the things that people look for in a sermon and to leave and say, that was a good sermon. Sometimes I find that really frustrating. Let me share a parable with you. It's a real life experience, but it's a great parable for the American church. I slept late this morning. Not so late that I miss things that I'm ordinarily here for before services, but late enough that it put me in a rush. There was a reason that I slept late this morning, specifically because I stayed up late last night reading a book about getting up early. That's a true story. And I think, I think, probably for some, your inclination spiritually is to stay up late reading books about getting up early while sleeping through the clock the next day. I think there are probably a lot of people who will be satisfied to leave today knowing more about Revelation 10 than they knew when they got here, but unaffected by the message of the gospel. And that is never our aim. If you always want to do a good job in preaching of expressing the basic substance and content of the passage, that's our job. And I take that incredibly seriously, to be precise and right, to rightly divide the word of God. But our goal, the main objective of our time together is not to learn more about the Bible. The goal, the primary objective of our time together is to be shaped and molded and made over into the image and likeness of God's only son, Jesus Christ. That does not happen exclusively between your ears. And I'm not, I'm not discounting the value, the importance of knowing certain things, being aware of certain things, of being sound or solid theologically. But I am telling you this morning that it makes absolutely no eternal difference whatsoever if you know the intricacies of the book of Revelation and your life is forever changed. You can stay up late every night reading books about getting up early and sleep through the clock for the rest of your days, and will, it will have made no difference at the end of your life. So I'm, I'm asking you this morning, what difference Revelation 10 makes for you? What do you learn about God here? Learn that Jesus is Lord on land and on sea, that he's the trustworthy God of all creation. 
But if that gets as deep as it's supposed to get, you won't tremble before petty tyrants tomorrow at work. You won't be fearful of certain outcomes in your life, even when it seems as though the cards are stacked against you. Because a good and faithful God in heaven is actively at work for my well-being and for the glory of his name. You, you, won't, you, you won't find yourself drifting off into mindless conjecture about the end and silly stuff that is rightly trivialized in our culture. But you'll live in light of that great day and a strong desire, an earnest desire to hear from the master, well done, thy good and faithful servant. If you're hearing well what the passage says, and not just fixating on how interesting revelation is, it's a danger. And you'll observe the pattern of Israel's obedience and disobedience in your life, and you'll look for opportunities. You'll look during seasons of blessing for ways that you can draw near to God. And, and you'll look in seasons of some judgment for how and why God may be stirring to bring about correction in your experience, and you'll be quick to repent of your sin. This, this, this room is not a classroom time for us to be washed over by the word of God, sanctified in the truth of the gospel, and I pray pierced by the spirit of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for these moments to spend together. God, I pray that you would help me help others to guard against this senseless intrigue that results not in growth in grace, but the enhancement of a mind that will one day pass away. I pray that you would help us to see the richness and the depth of your word, to digest with depth, with sincerity well, what is expressed to us through your word. I pray that you would help us to walk worthy as a result of our being sanctified by your word, empowered by your word. We ask that it would be hidden away in our heart, God, that we might not sin against you. Help us here, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name.